uh, as I said, we'll turn now in our Bibles to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 20 through 35 this morning. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is, un- is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because I said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, who is my brother? Who is my mother or my brothers? And he sat and he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Amen. And may God add his blessing to this word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we study your word this morning, we realize that we have before us a confronting passage. We pray that we would not apply to it any knowledge that we have attained for ourselves, but that we might be submissive before you. We might lean upon you and your Holy Spirit working within us to grant us a right and true and proper understanding of your word, that we might live for you and glorify you better as a result of this this morning. Christ is in Christ's name. Amen. Again, it's been a, uh, been a little while since I was preaching, but it is very good to be back here, to be able to get back into God's Word uh, with you all, and especially to recommence these series of sermons on Mark's Gospel. But it has been a minute since we were, a minute's understatement, it's been a minute since we were in Mark's Gospel last time, and when we finished off last time, just give us a little bit of a recap, it's been quite some time. Jesus was doing some absolutely incredible things. There had been a pattern begin to emerge of what he was doing. He was teaching, and when we see him teaching, we saw that he was teaching as one with authority, not as the scribes. He was teaching with authority. He was healing people, many various diseases. He was healing all of it. He was casting out demons, and he was doing these three things of teaching, healing, casting out demons to show and to prove that he wasn't just a man, but this is God in human flesh. Great things were happening. 
However, the religious leaders within Israel and the Roman rulers of the time, particularly the, the Herodians of the group that we've seen so far in Mark's Gospel, that they did not like what Jesus was doing because it chipped away at their own power base. So they put their heads together. These normally natural enemies had come together and that's begun to plot, how do we destroy this Jesus fellow? Now, of course, this might have been a deterrent to many people to hear this was happening, but it was not a deterrent to Christ. He kept doing what he'd been doing. He kept teaching. He kept healing. He kept casting out demons. And in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he's even gone so far as to call the 12 apostles to do these things as well. In many ways, it's a, it's a weird dynamic point in Mark's gospel that we left and are picking up in again. Things are going really, really well in a lot of ways. Multitudes are coming to Christ. But there's also an incredibly intense level of opposition to what he's doing. When we pick up in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 this morning, we see in just the first two verses that we read this morning, both the incredible support for Christ and the incredible opposition to Christ. We see that just in those first two verses we read today. There's undeniable popularity that Jesus has with people. People would come over from all over to hear him, to be healed by him, to have demons cast out. And it seems that people knew that this didn't just happen in office hours of 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. Because what we read here, the people are so pressed in around Jesus in verse 20, they couldn't even eat bread. Massive popularity. People can't get enough of this, or some people rather can't get enough of this. So compacted, so pressed in, they couldn't even eat bread, Jesus and his disciples. It's a popularity. But then there's the unpopularity. Now, that might be a bit, more, bit of a bland word to use here, an understatement. Verse 21. When his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. His own people. Now, what's caused this to happen and who are his own people? Because his own people, we see from what's happening here, the context shows us his own people who came to lay hold of him aren't the disciples following him. And what's caused this to happen? What's caused his own people to come and round Jesus up under the claim that he's out of his mind? Before we look at the, the what's happened, let's look at who his people were. Culturally at the time, we need to remember that the medical profession wasn't as it is today. If somebody was struggling psychologically, there, there were no mental health wards. It was a job of the family, and particularly the job of the extended family at the time, to look after the unwell family member, to keep it all reined in. So his own people here, quite likely uncles, cousins, those sorts of people coming to almost manhandle Jesus into a nice little granny flat out the back of the property so he can't cause any more disturbances. And it's the disturbances that they're concerned about because Jesus has made what for any human would be absolutely outlandish claims to make and frankly insane claims for anyone to make. He has said that he can forgive sin. God alone can forgive sin, but Jesus has said that he has a power to forgive sin and he even healed a paralyzed man to prove that. He has claimed to be 
God. The response here of his own people rounding Jesus up is not a poor reflection on Jesus. It's not a poor reflection on Jesus' mental state. This is a poor reflection on them for their unbelief. Because Jesus made claims that were true. How do we reconcile this? Seems to be what the family are doing. We don't believe it. Yes, there's miracles, there's healings, all manner of illnesses and injuries are being healed, but we just don't believe it. Demons are being cast out. No, we don't believe it. He's teaching with authority. Yeah, but maybe he could have done this better. How do we deal with it? He's crazy. There's a lack of belief here. Now, one commentator I thought was working very hard to try and find a positive for his own people here. And perhaps there is some merit to this. That while it's misplaced and untrusting, there seems to be a love for Jesus from these people. It's not love for Jesus as God, but they don't want the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes to destroy him. So to keep him safe from their worldview, they say, let's remove you from that so you don't cause any more problems. Now, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel to find a positive about these people. But perhaps if we're looking for something positive to say, that would be it. Let's get Jesus away from the trouble. Put him in the granny flat. Let's keep it quiet. Let's lock it down. But the reality is, this is a very sad thing. The fact that Mark has used the phrase, his own people, really hits hard, doesn't it? His own people accuse him of insanity. And the scribes who were there, the scribes jump all over this. They go somewhere a little bit different but slightly connected to the insanity claim. Oh, it makes sense now. If he's not in his right mind, he is possessed by Beelzebub. Now, when they say that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, they're almost uh, using Beelzebub and uh, Satan synonymously to say pretty much the same thing. Satan is possessing him. The greatest opposition we will face as God's people, he is possessing this man here. He is no good. He is filthy. Have nothing more to do with it. It's an opportunistic attack designed to, to hopefully discredit and finally destroy the things that Jesus is doing from the scribes. And it's an insanely twisted thing for the scribes to say when you consider how much good Jesus was doing. Despite the immeasurable level of popularity we see at the start here, the crowd's just pressing in so much. Sometimes when things are going well, opposition hits us the hardest. Sometimes when things are going well, we don't know how to answer the, the, the critics when it seems to come out of the blue. But Jesus is not caught out by these things. We would assume they'd be disheartened to some level by this arguably great level but he's not caught out instead jesus uses basic logic to confirm that he is not from satan that he is of god that he is god In verse 23 to 27 we see this play out for us he deals with the accusation that he's out of his mind and he deals with the accusation that he is under demonic possession can satan cast out satan 
Of course not. Of course not. A kingdom cannot divide against itself and stand, let alone thrive. There's a universal truth to, to what Jesus is saying here. It's a universal truth that we, we just get it. It makes sense. We can't deny this. We can't deny it because it's true. How could Satan work against Satan and still be successful? He can't. It reveals that what the scribes have done is an opportunistic attempt to discredit Christ that was not thought through at all. It has no basis whatsoever. One commentator I was reading went so far as to say he didn't think the scribes actually believed the claim that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebub. It just popped into their heads and they ran with it the moment got the better of them. And he went so far as to say it's just a stupid comment, which it is. This attempt to discredit comes through associating Christ with Satan, but that is not the case. And then we get to verse 27, and we get this parabolic, parable-ish, however you want to describe it, verse that confirms that Jesus is against Satan, not of Satan. Jesus has acknowledged, and we find elsewhere in Scripture, that Satan is a very powerful presence here on earth. And that those who are in sin are under his sway. Jesus talks in that verse there, in verse 27, about two strong men. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house. The first strong man there, the one who has the house with the goods in it, that's Satan. The second strong man, the one who is even stronger and able to bind the one whose house it is, is a Satan. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is showing us here his intent. His intent is to plunder Satan's house, to tie up Satan. And the goods, the goods that Jesus has every intention of plundering are the lost souls that he came to seek and to save. He is powerful enough to do this. He is saying what he is going to do. Now that could be the end of the lesson right there. But Jesus takes us even further in verses 28 to 30. And verse 30 really does tie verses 28 uh, through to 30 right back to verse 20. It all connects. Jesus points out the people's sin. He points out the sin of who Mark has called his own people. He points out the sin of the scribes. And this isn't a particularly gentle rebuttal. It's a stern reminder. He tells them that whatever blasphemies they may utter, they'll be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness and is subject to eternal condemnation. There is a sin that cannot be forgiven. 
That sin, Jesus tells us, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But what does this mean? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I've said this before, but when I started Bible college, my principal said, if you ever fall asleep in class, which most of the time it was one-on-one lectures with the principal and myself, so there's no opportunity for that, unfortunately. If you ever fall asleep in class, Callum, and you've been asked a question, you don't know how to answer it, just say context and you'll probably be right. The context here actually does show us a lot and helps us to answer what this unforgivable sin is. So we look at what's happened to get to this point of what we've read today. His own people have come out and said, Jesus is crazy. Jesus is crazy. He is out of his mind. The scribes have said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. He is possessed by Satan is what they're saying. They have rejected Christ. And in rejecting Christ, they have also rejected the Holy Spirit who bears witness, who bears testimony to the undeniable truth of these things that Jesus is saying about himself that he alone is a means of salvation, that he alone can forgive sins because he is God. There is rejection of the Spirit's testimony here. And we need to remember, we're about to start this new Bible study series on the Holy Spirit, which ties in perfectly timing-wise that we're touching on this today. The Holy Spirit is not this abstract force that people can harness to their own will like the force in Star Wars. The Holy Spirit is the third person of our triune Godhead. It is not a force that Jesus tells us we reject. This is the testimony of a person that is not forgivable. It is a testimony of the third person of our eternal, holy, triune God. As Christians, we are the goods that have been plundered from the strong man's house by the stronger man, Jesus. Before we were taken out, before we were plundered out of that house. And this plundering is a, it's a good thing because we are taken out of that. We once lived in darkness, we once lived in sin. And to our heart's dismay, as we look back on our lives before we were saved, we often delighted in fragrant sin. Disgusting, revolting sin was sometimes our delight. All of us need to put our hands up and say, yes, we need forgiveness. The idea that forgiveness could not be given to someone, that's a horrendous thought. The fact that forgiveness might be withheld if we reject the Spirit, if we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, is a scary thought. And it's an eternal one. Jesus talks here of eternal condemnation for those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. If we have heard the claim... That Jesus Christ is God. And we have not accepted that claim. Then we are actively blaspheming God. We are actively blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And we are calling him a liar. If we have read anything of scripture. And we say no we don't believe that. I don't want to believe that. That can't be right. That doesn't fit with my way of living. That doesn't fit with my worldview. We are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. We are saying, no, that's not true. I don't want it. It's a lie. To reject Christ is to call the Holy Spirit a liar. And this is blasphemy of the highest order. When we consider our triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are completely without deceit or darkness. 
Numbers chapter 33 verse 19. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. And most clearly Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 tell us that God cannot lie. But to say no, we don't want to have anything with Jesus. No, we have question marks. No, that can't be right is to accuse the Holy Spirit of being a liar. And in rejecting the Holy Spirit's testimony that Christ is who he claims to be, we say, no, you know what, we'd rather try and win our souls on our own. We'd rather try and have salvation in our lives here right now the way we want them to be, and there is no forgiveness there. We cannot have forgiveness. We cannot have forgiveness for our sins apart from God. But to do this, to reject him, is to place ourselves in a situation where there is no forgiveness. This is where the people that Mark calls Jesus' own people were heading. This is where the scribes who made the really, really dumb accusation that Jesus was demonically possessed are placing themselves. Outside, of the amazing grace of God who has plundered many goods, many souls for himself. People who do this rejection are saying, we like it better in the strong man's house. Doesn't matter if you claim you're greater God, we like it more here. Just thinking now, it brings to mind if anyone's... I think it's the seventh book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. The last battle at the very end. And the dwarves who imagine themselves to be in the hut with the rubbish, mouldy food. And those who love Aslan can see that there's fresh air and there's actually a feast before them. But those dwarves in their minds, they're just trapped in this darkness. In all ways, that encapsulates this. We have freedom in God. But to reject God is to trap ourselves in sin and darkness and death. This rejection of God is a truly great sin. And this is a scary and a weighty thing for us to consider. The one sin that we read of in the Bible that is unforgivable is a rejection of the Holy Spirit, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We should work in our lives to ensure that we never think that we can put God off. We should work to encourage those who we know and love who don't love God to not think they can put God off. We often hear the people say, I'll make my minds up about that later. But what if we don't have a later The one who rejects the truth of God will never have forgiveness for sin. Everything else there is forgiveness for in Christ, but we cannot be forgiven if we live our lives locking our knees, refusing to bow the knee to the one and true living God. Now from there, Mark moves us pretty quickly from verse 30 through to 31 through 35. And we see in a lot of ways the sadness continue to be extended from the family here. Now, we're not given a motive for why Jesus' mother and brothers are there. But it seems to tie in to the fact that 
they're still concerned for Jesus' well-being. Perhaps an attempt to remove him from what they consider to be a dangerous situation continues. The extended family couldn't do it, so now it's the immediate family have to step up. Maybe that's what's happening here. We read that Jesus' brothers and his mother came to where he was, and when they got there, they sent people for Jesus, and they called out to Jesus, they called out for him. Now, we don't really know a whole heap of what's happening over the dinner, but you'd assume it's become a teaching opportunity. It certainly has in how Jesus responds to the claim of out of your mind and demon possession. And Jesus has people say to him, your mother, your brothers, they're looking for you. And what Jesus says in response to that is quite shocking. If I said what Jesus said, I don't think I'd stay in my parents' will. Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now imagine you're the crowd right there. Jesus has just been accused of being out of his mind. And now he's saying, who's my mother and brothers? Maybe he is out of his mind. Maybe he has lost it. Dude, we just told you who they are. You've lived with them for a really long time now. Please don't start doing this to us. We're trying to stick with you. Maybe that's where the crowd's minds are going. Maybe that's where our minds go when we see this. But we can rest assured that this is not a moment of insanity for Jesus. Jesus looks around the circle where they were sitting. And he tells them something really, really wonderful. It's shocking because it's not what's expected, but it's something wonderful. It's something that their hearts desperately needed to hear. It's something that our hearts desperately need to hear, particularly when we've just been looking at something like eternal condemnation what Jesus says is that those who are with Jesus those who do the will of God the Father are his brother and his sister and his mother now think about that it wasn't the cream of the crop in the society who was spending most of their time close to Jesus these were often sinners who were rejected by pretty much everyone else. Blatant sinners. But they found something here. They found God. Despite all their sin, despite all our sin, despite all my sin, if we find ourselves with Jesus, doing the will of the Father, and we are his brothers and his sisters and his mother. This is an incredible thing, but this is something we need to hear. We need to be hearing this for what it is. Because perhaps on hearing that there is a sin that's unforgivable, we go, how could I ever be saved? Our minds go to all those horrible things that we have done. All those times where we have rejected God's way of living in favour of our own only to regret it later on. When we look at this, we need to give thanks. Give thanks that the Holy Spirit has borne credible testimony to our hearts and convicted our hearts in such a way that we believe that Jesus is God. And that because of what Jesus did, and the work of the Holy Spirit and the will of the Father being done by Christ, 
we have forgiveness from God. We are his. We are his brothers and we are his sisters. There are those who continue to reject God. There are those who continue to deny God. This grieves us to see it when it happens. But by his infinite grace, the Holy Spirit has worked in us, has made us realize the testimony of Jesus in the Bible is true, has brought us to repentance, has brought us to saving faith, and as Paul writes in the second letter to the Corinthians, has made us new creations in Jesus. We have nothing on our own to say that we're better from his own people or the scribes. But despite that, despite our shortcomings, Jesus has plundered us from Satan's house. He has ransomed us. He has won us. And the Holy Spirit, not a force, but this person of the Trinity, keeps on reminding us of those things, making us more and more and more like the strongest, the greatest, the most beautiful one ever, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. There is a firm, there is a serious, there is an eternal warning that we have read in this passage today. But still we finish with that note of joy and hope and celebration that we have been freed from sin, that we are his. We don't live perfectly now, but by God's grace it's a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better day after day as the Holy Spirit helps us to live according to the Father's will. So we need to take serious note of the very serious warning here. But as Christians, we can also look at this and rejoice and celebrate the goodness of God that he would grant redemption from sin to us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for... Your word, we thank you for the time we have had this morning to return to Mark's gospel. Lord God, we ask that you would work inside each one of us, that we might continue to love you more and more, that we might never find ourselves straying from you or your ways, but that you would keep us close to yourself in all things. And Lord God, should there be any here this morning who have not yet uh, been moved by the Spirit to, to place their faith and their trust in you, we pray that they would do so that your spirit would do wonderful things in their life, that they might rejoice in the freedom and the liberation that we have as Christians, where we no longer fear eternal condemnation, but look forward to a glorious eternal future with you, our